Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of Let's Get Talking. Now we're on to episode 8 and the closing stages of series 1 but I'm so happy to say that the podcast will be rolling on to another series and I'll be bringing you all lots more inspirational and honest conversations. And on the note of inspiration, today's guest certainly matches that. Sally was diagnosed with leukemia in 2018 and since the diagnosis she faced a whole range of complications and fought for her life right down to the wire on several occasions. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's a powerful, powerful story of Sally's personal battle but she speaks so brilliantly and offers so much positivity. So sit back, relax and even grab a cup of tea and let's get talking with Sally O'Neill. Welcome back to yet another episode of Let's Get Talking, where I'm today, I'm joined by a guest who I think beams inspiration, beams positivity. So a big hello to Sally, who joins the show actually all the way from France. Um, how are you doing today? I know when we were just having a chat before we started the recording, you said it's very sunny out there in France. Yeah, so um, I presume yeah. it's all good your end. Um, yeah, we've, we've had a pretty cold winter. And then um, the biggest thing I've noticed about living in France is the weather changes very quickly. So it can go from being minus 10 to almost 20 degrees, almost within 24 hours. And we've had, we've had exactly that happen. So we had snow on the road not long ago and it's now 16, 18 degrees outside and the birds are singing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely. I think a lot of people will be listening to this will be uh, waiting for those type of temperatures to, yeah. to come over to, to England. Um, Whereabouts are you in France at the moment? Because you haven't always lived out there, have you? No, no, no. I lived in the. I, I, I've gone from one extreme to the other. I lived in the north of England, <laughs> in the northwest, in the wettest part of the country, uh, near Buxton, in the in the in the High Peak. Um, so always being a country girl. I worked in the city, but I love being in the country. Um, if I was to turn my computer around now, obviously that's not so useful for a podcast, but you'd be able to see the Alps outside so um i i literally moved from the northwest of england to the southeast of france and so i'm about uh 30 minutes outside of geneva in switzerland in the in the in france and um we moved here because uh, my husband and i both love the outdoor life we both skied every year uh whenever we could we'd been working on the internet for about two, three years, and we suddenly came through this particular area and thought, oh, actually, we can work on the internet wherever we want, let's move. And that was in the January, and by the October, we were out here. And uh, the, the only limiting factor had been up till then that I had horses, and I didn't want to give up the horses to live in France. And everywhere we went in the Alps was very mountainous and very, you had to be a mountain goat really, um, or a sheep to sort of really make it. My, my English thoroughbred wouldn't have liked it. And we've found a corner that's got every, um, every aspect, it's agricultural, there was lots of hacking for the horses and, skiing in the winter it's, it, it, it's, it's the best thing we, we ever did 
Yeah, it sounds nice. lovely. And I think people li- listening to this conversation whilst we, we go through your story and your journey, if they can imagine they're looking out their window and they can see the Alps, that might paint a, good, a great picture for them. Um, yeah. Obviously, we connected over social media um, from when I put out about the podcast and, and looking for guests who, who have got great stories to share. Um, your story is one that's definitely powerful and, and inspiring. And um also, as we're here, obviously a really difficult time for you in your in your life. Can you let the listeners know just to start us off? You have done a little bit there, I suppose, but just a little bit about yourself and and who you are and how you've got yeah. to where you are sort of today, I suppose. Yeah, sure. Um, I I'm I'm a jack of all trades. Is the best way I can describe myself. I'm, I trained as a scientist. I trained as a biomedical scientist, um, which. Ironically, when we go on to discuss what happened to me later on, it became very relevant. Um, uh, but I've always had a real passion for science. Um, I still I still read scientific papers uh, almost like novels. Um, it, it's just a huge passion of mine, even, even though I'm no longer working in science. Um, and then I've, I've had such a varied uh, background. I, I couldn't have predicted it. I couldn't have said to you at school, this is what's gonna happen. Um, so I then went on into sales and marketing. I worked um, in high level recruitment for a number of years. I really enjoyed it. Didn't, wouldn't have expected to enjoy it. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, I then uh, set up uh, a company for myself and my husband because the internet uh, some of your listeners probably won't <laughs> really understand what it was like before the internet um, but teachers were still using pen and paper to record all of their pupils data and my husband was a teacher and was very interested in IT anyway we set up our own business and we were literally selling um, a web-based uh, tracking system for pupils results when that really wasn't a thing so it was really cutting edge so mm-hmm. it was really it was more a case of going in and reassuring people that they weren't going to have all the data stolen and things like that than it was or even even down to the basics of this is what you ha- this is how you use the internet to do these sorts of things and it was um it was very successful and uh, that, that's basically what's allowed us to move out to France is being based on the internet. So I did that. Um, I've also had, uh, you can put, I don't know if you can see all the books behind me. I think every single one of them is about horses. Um, the science of equestrian, uh, equestrianism, uh, training methods, everything. And I, when I, first started setting up my own business, I had the opportunity to work with an ex-world champion and European champion in eventing, which was unbelievable. It was an insight into top level elite uh, competition that I would have never had any other way. Um, and And that's continued. So I've continued doing my own projects, working for myself. But then I've also carried on working in elements of equestrianism. So I'm currently working with another um, international level uh, trainer. And I, I, I just, I, I haven't got a standard CV, but the one thing that runs all the way through it is learning, the opportunity to learn all the time. And that's what 
floats my boat really <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think it's a great way to start the conversation because um as we've discussed previously um a lot of young people listen to this and also people that might be listening to this that are a bit um stuck i suppose maybe in a in a career choice or in a job that they're not enjoying so it's obviously to hear firsthand that you can be so sort of interested and trained or whatever it might be in something but that can take on lots of different paths and you can still enjoy every each and every one of them and take something from that and keep learning and is a really positive message and I think people listening um as we get into your story are going to be able to relate one way or another whether that's personally or um a family experience or you know that feeling of sort of being out of control of something so I'm looking forward to delving into your story and I suppose can I take you back to the the start of your story really and what's obviously put us in touch um, in terms of your diagnosis I think was in December 2018 and I know we've spoken a little about it um, a little bit about it previously and you mentioned obviously the drastic changes that that just had in your life straight away um, yeah can we just delve into into your story a little bit from that moment Sure. So in December 2018, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And I think a lot of people imagine cancer being something that they've maybe missed or that's that. Yes, it can grow quickly, but um, you have a chance to find a tumor or there's there's, there's there's some there's a period of when you're not ill that you don't know you actually have cancer. And with acute myeloid leukemia, it doesn't happen like that. You literally go from being well to being very ill within, I mean, life-threateningly ill within a space of about four weeks. And um, what, what commonly happens is that people go to the doctors because they're feeling extraordinarily tired which is exactly what happened to me. Um, I'd got to the stage where I'd, I'd had glandular fever earlier in the year. And so part of me just thought, oh, I'm having a bit of a slump because the glandular fever's flared up again. And uh, I hadn't had any tiredness through the summers and I'd been working hard in the fields with the horses and things like that. And I just thought, oh, I've overdone it. And then it just didn't go away. It was there for, you know, I, I literally was lying on the settee I was unable to move. I was unable to cook. Um, I went to see a doctor um, and it wasn't a great experience in hindsight um, because she x-rayed me and diagnosed pneumonia and gave me antibiotics, just a, a, a basic antibiotic and steroids, which made me feel a lot better. Mm. And so I thought, okay, that's fine. I've got pneumonia. I now know um, that getting pneumonia as a previously healthy is not normal and it is a red flag and um, the GP should have realised why has this person got pneumonia. So I actually, after not being able to move off the settee on the steroids, I felt so much better. I actually went to a conference in Nottingham and how I did how I did that in in hindsight, I do not know, but I really wanted to go because I just started my own podcast on equestrian science, and I and I already got sponsors wanting to be part of it, and I'd got a lot of scientists in equestrian science wanting to take part on it, and it was really important to me that I went, so I went, and two friends that I was staying with took me on one side and said. 
what's what's going on, Sally? And I said, oh, I've just got, I've got pneumonia, I've got inhalers, I've got steroids and antibiotics, I'll be fine. And they went, no, no, we don't, we don't, we don't believe that. And uh, so I got home and coming home for me was slightly more complicated because I had to come back up to altitude in the Alps. And as soon as I got home, I felt absolutely dreadful. And I said to my husband, I'm going to go into the doctor tomorrow morning. And I didn't get a chance. I collapsed in the night. I, got, I, I felt very ill. I got up to go to the toilet and I collapsed and passed out. I vomited everywhere, which is a funny story, actually, in hindsight, because I'd actually eaten a beetroot curry that evening. <laughs> so, so when the ambulance men turned up to pick me up off the floor, they took a lot of convincing that I wasn't bleeding out and it wasn't a lot worse. I mean, it was it was a very bad situation, but it, it was not the ideal food to have. In hindsight, yeah. <laughs> Uh, repaint the bedroom um but um yeah I, li- I literally collapsed and was rushed to hospital and my husband didn't know if he was going to arrive at the hospital and I was going to be alive or dead um and and that is that is typical of acute myeloid leukemia so when I was finally diagnosed um, I found out that 80% of my blood was cancer cells. So that was why I was so tired and that was why I was so ill. Um, and I had septicemia, I had pneumonia, um, I had a fluid which had built up around my heart as a result of the, the, the illness in my blood and um, that was actually stopping my heart from compressing properly or expanding properly, actually. And uh, so my, my body was, I, I was very close to death. And um, I, uh, it, was a, it was a rude awakening. And um, I'm just grateful that the medical staff at the hospital that received me treated me so well. And yeah, like you said, uh, when we spoke before and you said oh, you mentioned how quickly it sort of took over you so to speak at one from yeah. a better term and we're speaking to you now it does really hit home how quickly that went from you going to that conference for example and then uh being in hospital not knowing whether you were gonna pull through and i presume obviously you then spent the next um years or however long it was receiving treatment um what was it in those times, I suppose, that kept you going? Obviously, looking back, and obviously you were seriously ill, so at points you, you might not be able to remember certain things, but yeah. what, what was it about your sort of, um, I suppose, being able to just keep you going and, and stay as positive as possible in such a traumatic experience and, and well, terrible I'll, illness? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you um, what happened when I actually got the diagnosis. So I was, I was taken into hospital into intensive care to save my life. They obviously ran blood tests. Originally they thought I'd got carbon monoxide poisoning because they just couldn't understand. And they tested my husband as well. Um, they just couldn't understand how I'd been abroad, come back and literally just hit the floor. Um, so, I then was transferred to a university hospital because the local hospital that I was at weren't able to treat me. And um, the 
the, the, the doctor who then informed he said of course you've been told you've got leukemia and I said uh, no I haven't actually um, and um, the way I can describe it is and, and this is relevant to my whole attitude towards the two years that I subsequently spent uh, in hospital um, I was so calm um, I expected myself to be um, upset, obviously. I expected myself to be tearful, um, frightened, um, a whole list of emotions that I could have felt. And um, instead, I was absolutely calm. And it was almost as if we were talking about what type of cake we were going to have with our coffee. Mm -hmm. And and I found that my scientific knowledge and my medical background really kicked in because I was able, I, I explained to the doctor straight away what, what my background was. And I said, please don't worry about having to explain anything to me because I, ironically, I'd actually studied leukemia cells in my PhD. <laughs> so it was, it was the exact kind of leukemia that I had. And um, awesome. um, so, I, I guess it, it, it felt almost strangely familiar and you would have thought that because of my medical knowledge I would have felt even more frightened um, but I felt very calm and that that is there are a few things that I think I've learned uh, through my life up to this point up to the point of being diagnosed that in hindsight I look back and can explain why I reacted the way that I did and um, I did struggle with it mentally as I was getting better you just already said that you know there will be things I didn't remember there were lots of things I didn't remember and I literally had to go through everything with my family mm. and say why did this happen why did I end up there why did um, and through that journey, and part of it was, I guess I felt almost subhuman. Um, and I, I did worry about that. I thought it wasn't normal to be as calm as I was. Um, and then I remembered um, a friend of ours uh, is a mountain guide and he was involved in a BBC television programme and he had an intensive care nurse on his team and he took her rock climbing in Pembrokeshire on the Pembrokeshire coast. Mm. And I've done a lot of rock climbing and sea cliff climbing is particularly, you, it's particularly, um, the exposure is is very extreme and you've got the sound of the waves crashing and the booming through the rock as you're trying to climb up it and they had a heart rate monitor on her and um i um i remembered that the physiologist that was following them absolutely amazed this intensive care nurse who'd never climbed before in her life She'd been trained to climb and then taken to this extreme environment. Her heart rate didn't change at all. Wow. And um, she put it down to her training, that she, that she 
had to be like that because you had to deal with emergencies all the time. And then that reminded me of two instances that I'd had in my life, one rock climbing, ironically, where I was on a route with someone who was a less experienced climber than I was, and, I, and I'm not a great climber, um, but it was a very near death experience that I had to pull through. And I also had an experience with a horse in a trailer that had an accident and the horse was in the process of dying. Um, it was trapped in the trailer and it couldn't breathe. And um, I had to deal with that situation. The owner of the horse was actually more than happy to just let me get on with it. And, uh, and I, and what I remembered about myself was that I went, it, I, in those two situations, I was extremely calm. I kind of accepted that I was in a very bad situation and I had to pull my big girl knickers on <laughs> and, <laughs> and get on with it. And, and that's, that allowed me to accept how I'd reacted to my diagnosis. That I, I, I recognize that that is something in me that, I, that happens normally and in these sorts of situations. And, and I, I, I didn't, I, I, I no longer felt unhuman. I just acknowledged it as maybe a, a strength of mine, actually, that, mm. that in those really critical situations, I was able to be calm. And, and that's kind of, uh, there are a few mottos that I've used throughout my life. Um, and, and, and one of them is, there's, there's, there's no point being anxious about things you can't change. Um, you're better being anxious and motivated to change the things that are possible to change. And I think um, my diagnosis was, was, well, okay, I'm on a train. It's not going to stop. I've got to go through the whole treatment process. And um, I've just got to get on with it. Mm. Um, and the other phrase that I use in my head all the time is where there's a will there's a way and um i i, I do i i don't I, I read very early on actually that positivity has very little outcome uh, very little um influence on outcome of a cancer diagnosis and for me that was really important to know because had I failed, I could have blamed myself for not being positive enough. Um, I think positivity in your life may affect your chances of getting cancer, um, but, but once you've got it, the actual outcome does not relate to positivity. And, and that allowed me to go into that very thoughtful, right, I've just got to get through this. I don't have to worry about my state of mind. I just have to get through this. Um, and I think the doctors actually interpreted my calmness as depression. Well, I know they did. They, they, they couldn't understand. They, they just felt that I was giving up and mm. I wasn't giving up actually. It was just that I was very careful where I expended my energy um if that makes any sense yeah it does i think looking like um i've had a few experiences on the podcast recording with different guests and i just get so lost in their stories and especially where you've linked it to there in terms of um 
the effect of positivity and then also like you said during your um during your cancer and your illness and the treatment that followed and the and the months and years that followed after that having that mindset that right okay this is what's in front of me and this is what is going to happen um but I can only control and in, in your case unfortunately what you can control um and I think having that process of you know just seeing everything in front of you um and a really thoughtful process probably I can see would be looked at like why why aren't you upset why why aren't you why aren't you thinking you know like you said you know what um in terms of like being positive and or being upset but you you took it on board you looked at it face on and you said right let's deal with it and you you knew where you had to get to pretty much and uh, and one of the things I wanted to talk about, but you've already covered it, which is brilliant, is in terms of that self-reflection and looking back on things that have happened to you. Um, do you find it um, easy or difficult to talk about sort of your your experience and your story in terms of from a sort of a mindset and a mental health point of view? Is it difficult looking back on that time of your life or do you look at look back on it and see how obviously how far you've come? I... Um... I've had various times in my life when I've been at rock bottom and and yet I find myself um, to be a very happy positive person and I honestly believe that everything that's happened to me I've come out of it a better person and you know uh, just li little things um, like um, when you're, you know, emotional intelligence, you know, you have friends that are very worried about you because they've got cancer, because, because you've got cancer and they'll send you a message and it might be, tell me when I can call. And that might seem very, um, benign at the moment but when you're totally overwhelmed and feeling so ill with the treatment that you're receiving because one of the things I've got to mention is that when you've got leukemia uh, or something very similar that affects your immune system you're in a you're in a um, solitary confinement room you're it, it's I didn't see anyone's face for the whole time I was in the hospital even my husband's um, everyone had to wear a mask, everyone had to wear a head covering, everyone had to wear blue overalls. Um, so you're in a very isolated position and, and, and so people wanted to be helpful. But actually, the energy required to answer a simple question like, tell me when I can call, was enormous. And so I had to very quickly tune up my emotional intelligence to be able to go back to these people and say, I really appreciate why you're asking me. However, I need you to ask me in this way. I need you to ask me, um, would I like to talk to you? Or um, I couldn't cope with such a direct question because the fact of the matter was, I couldn't tell them when I would want to talk. I couldn't tell them when I could talk. I mean, for a lot of my illness, um, I couldn't even swallow um, and li literally 
I couldn't even swallow my own saliva because my uh, throat was completely swollen um, from the treatment. So I had to manage how I communicated with people um, and so that it was useful to me. Um, and and that, that was quite foreign because I'm not really um, somebody who thinks about my own outcomes as much as other people's. So I'm much more the sort of person that would go to myself, say to myself, oh, well, that person is obviously worried about me. I need to make an effort to make sure that I reassure them. And in fact, what I actually had to do was go, that doesn't fit with me at the moment and I can't deal with it. So I'm going to deal with it in a different way. Mm. And so I, I really did, um, I really did learn to take control of, of what was happening around me. Um, and um, I, I've grown enormously because of that. Really, really have. Um, it's something that I, I wouldn't have done previously. And um, accepting that people uh, have their own needs. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're in that sort of situation, you only have the energy to think about yourself. Mm. And that's okay. That's what you've got to do. Um, so I did use Facebook quite a lot um, because it stopped people from wanting to contact me um, to find out what was happening. Uh, I would post updates, I would, I would post funny things. I'd I posted a lot of funny things actually. Um, <laughs> There were in, in the very first um, chemotherapy round, which was um, the chemotherapy itself was about 10 days long, um, very, very intensive, um, had really bad side effects uh, from it, um, which uh, what one of which will make your listeners laugh because I got chemo hemorrhoids. And uh, all I can say is all the treatment that I went through, all everything was nowhere near as painful as the chemo hemorrhoids. <laughs> they were unbelievable. And um, the doctors got quite worried about it. And um, anyway, one evening I was lying in bed and uh, as I was every day. Um, and this beautiful man walked into my room. I mean, I, I called him a Greek God. He was blonde, he was tall, he was clearly a swimmer or very sporty, had very broad shoulders, just a, a dream boat. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> uh, this is a bit of a sight for sore eyes. I haven't seen anyone for a few hours. Um, what, why, why are you here? And this answer was, I'm here to see your hemorrhoids. <laughs> and it was just, uh, you, you just have to find the funny side of things I mean Idea. you know having such a beautiful man look at my bottom was not on my list of to do things <laughs> um, but um you just have to you just have to and it was I found it genuinely funny and mm. so those are the sorts of things that I would post um I had I had one experience where when I was very, very ill, I'd be, so I'd gone down to Grenoble. I then almost died again that night and I was rushed into ICU. This was because of the fluid around my heart. 
The following morning, I went into surgery to have a drain put in to take away the fluid around my heart. And um, I was uh, quite overweight at the time. And um, these, and I'm terrified of needles. And the surgeon said to me, um, well, it depends. If we find more than 30 mil of fat uh, under your skin, then um, we'll, we'll give you, we'll knock you out. If it's any less than that, it's a local anaesthetic. And I was thinking, I don't want a local anaesthetic. <laughs> I, want, I want to be knocked out. And, um, and he very, very medically said, turned around to me and said, um, well, there's more than 30 mil there. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be knocking you out. And the nurses took the rib out of him and they were just, how rude to talk to a lady like that. And we were just having a complete laugh. And then um, they gave me ketamine. Uh, I mean, I was, I was clearly, um, seriously ill um but they they gave me uh, ketamine and just before they gave it to me the nurse whispered in my ear what are you going to dream about and I and I and I said uh, sorry and she said well you're gonna have a really vivid dream think about what you want to dream about and um I'd been watching uh, Last Kingdom mm -hmm. The Last Kingdom uh, the Vikings and the Saxons fighting each other and that's what I dreamt about and it was I was in this really big party and everyone was <laughs> here and and um, I came round and they said oh everything's gone really well and the nurse said to me what did you dream about and I said oh, I was drinking beer with Uhtred and uh, Breeder and we were the Vikings on the Last Kingdom and all the staff who were all French obviously mm. just looked at me and just said Oh, I've no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you... And one of the nurses knew exactly what I'd been watching, and she was going, "Yeah, it's crazy, these Vikings and all this." <laughs> and, and so I just found the medical staff became very quickly part of that comic relief mm. moment. Um, they understood how important it was as much as I did, and so. Um, despite the really bad situation, I, I had some wonderful, really uh, lifelong memories that I'm going to have with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, it sounds like even in, like you say, in, the, in that really sort of bad situation and even at the times when you were seriously, seriously ill, um, how important it is just to stop if you can and laugh, I suppose. Um, and I think that's such a powerful message to anyone that's listening, um, whether you're going through whatever it might be, just to stop and find something that will make you laugh um, can, can, make a, can make a big yeah, difference. I think um, that there, there have been a lot of things where um, I've, I've been able to find a silver lining every mm. single time. Um, I mean, there was one particular episode that happened to me when I came out of um, Grenoble and went to a rehabilitation center, which was nearer to my home which um, I don't find difficult to talk about now, but for months and months and months, I couldn't talk about um, because I'd gone from a very supportive environment where everything was handled really well to one that was terrible, mm -hmm. really terrible. I was in a lot of pain and they didn't give me the right painkillers. 
Um, even one of the nurses said to my mother, um, she's not on the right drugs. But I, I, I saw the doctor very rarely. It was, it was really negligent. And um, I had a liver problem, which then sent me back to Grenoble. They changed my painkillers and within 24 hours I was pain free. Um, and so that's been very difficult to go over in my head. Um, and, and that's when I reached my absolute lowest because mm. it really felt as if, okay, I've done everything. I've, I've stopped at all the stops on the train journey. I've taken all the drugs. This is not going to end. And uh, apparently friends came to visit me and they couldn't wake me up or they came to visit me and I just looked at them and said, just leave me alone. Um, but then that's when you have to learn to rely on the people around you. And my family really stepped up to the plate and mm. my friends and they just said, right, we're getting you out of here. And, and as it happened, the day they were coming to get me, to bring me home, um, I actually ended up being very ill and was taken back to Grenoble. Um, but yeah, that, that, was, that was the absolute hardest time. Did you feel at that point that obviously, like you just said there, you you had done everything that you've been asked of, you've taken every drug, you've had surgery, whatever it might have been, all the tr different treatments. Did you feel at that point, like when you said about people coming in and visiting you and you would just sort of push them away or just stay in bed or be asleep? Did you feel at that point that you were potentially sort of fed up and on, on the path to giving up, would you think, looking back yeah, at it? Definitely. Yeah. I think it was the only time. I mean, I had the... I had the I had a very complicated um, initial chemotherapy. Um, I then had the bone marrow transplant, which was also very um, complicated. Um, I then had a graft versus host, where the um, the bone marrow that I received from my sister attacked my body, and I was in for seven months uh, in a hospital. I couldn't eat. I was fed by tube. And I, and I went through all of that and my, my spirits remained high. The medical staff never told me, um, but they told my family on four occasions to prepare for me mm. not being there anymore. And, um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't feel feel low on that. When I felt low was when I'd been released from that and, and then got poor care mm. and the poor care really I mean I had one particular nurse who was rude to me in a very aggressive way and she did it in front of my family it wasn't even as if it was something that was hidden mm. and um and that's when I really lost faith and fortunately for me because I had another complication, I was taken back to the people that really cared about me and I cared about them. And, um, and so I came out from that, having my faith restored, they'd sorted me out um, and, and I was back on track. So you can have lows and be extremely low. And I've had times in my life where I have been extremely low. Um, and if you can just hope that there is going to be a change of wind, 
usually I would say 99.9% of the time it does happen. Mm. You know, however bad it is, um, if you stick with it, it will change. Definitely, that's such a powerful message. Um, and if that whole trauma and that journey wasn't difficult enough, I know that when I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think when you were released um, from hospital, from your treatment, um, I think a rare condition, um, and I'll leave it to you to pronounce it because you might be better than, better than me, but many people might not know of the, the, the condition or the syndrome. Can you let us know sort of of that path? Because I think people would have listened to this whole conversation and thought, she's been through absolutely everything you would have thought of and she's positive and she's come out the other side and she's been just listening to you has been really inspiring but then obviously this happened to you um and did it all sort of just start happening again I suppose um uh yeah pretty much so what happened was um I was released um in the middle of February um to come home and that was very exciting. Um, I, I still had a lot of problems. I still needed a lot of nursing, um, but uh, I, I mean, I hadn't eaten. I hadn't, I literally have not eaten food um, on a regular basis for almost 12 months. So my stomach was a mess and, you know, it, it, it wasn't rosy, but it was great to be home. And um, I think two weeks after I had been home, it started with something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's just a coincidence, it's a French name, and <laughs> I've had it in France, but it's called Guillain-Barre syndrome, and it's basically where your own immune system attacks your nerves. So people might be more familiar with something like multiple sclerosis. It's very similar to multiple sclerosis, but it's very acute. So multiple sclerosis generally takes um, a few years to come on and people will actually be suffering from it maybe for a few years before they even get diagnosed. Guillain-Barre can literally happen. I mean, I literally went to bed and woke up the next morning and couldn't move my legs. And um, very quickly, within 24 hours, I couldn't move any part of my body. So I was rushed back into hospital, this time into a neuro neurology block um it wasn't as difficult as people might think it might have been because i was so ill i was hallucinating a lot of the time um the big difficulty was that this was now during covid so my family couldn't visit me mm -hmm. so the whole time i'd been in hospital before my mother actually who's who's 75 um moved out to grenoble and came to visit me for a few hours every day uh, because my husband was working, he had to work, he came down at the weekends. This time I had nobody coming to visit me. And when my husband did eventually get to visit me about a week before I was discharged, um, he was extremely shocked because I'd look, I looked as if I'd had a major stroke. I couldn't talk properly. Um, I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't actually even be fed because um, my um, swallowing reflex was paralyzed. Um, but the good side of Guillain-Barre is that that usually uh, gets better. And so you actually have Guillain-Barre, you plateau. Many people ended up on a respirator with a tracheotomy. I was taken for that um, down to intensive care to have that done. 
and in the night that preceded that procedure they decided that I'd actually plateaued and that I wasn't going to be getting any worse so I didn't actually have that um, but I was hallucinating the whole time I was just in, a, in, in another world and um, because of my mental state I was seen by a psychiatrist and he said um, basically that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress by this which I, I guess isn't that surprising yeah. <laughs> um, by this point. And he felt, especially with COVID and being unable to have any visitors, that it was better for me to go home, even though I was still completely paralyzed, um, but I was able to eat. Um, and so my mother is a retired nurse my husband works from home. Had I had another family situation, I would not have been allowed home. Um, but we basically made our bedroom into a hospital room. I had a hospital bed and, um, and I came home. And my story now is that I'm still, so that was in, that was a year ago that that happened. Um, and I am, I am slowly recovering. I can now walk for about 20 meters. Um, I still have a lot of fatigue, I can't work, um, but um, I, I can honestly say I'm probably the happiest I've been in my entire life. I mean, we had the doors open earlier just to let some fresh air into the, into the house and listening to the birds. Mm. It just, two, two years of not being able to, well, not two years, 18 months of not being able to even hear the birds because I was in an isolation room. Um, not being able to smell the air outside, not being able to, I had a beautiful view, but I had no other sensory um, input. And, and, and so every time I just notice those things, it just makes me, it just fills me with joy. Yeah, really. such a powerful and inspiring journey. And I think um, this is everything that um, I wanted the podcast to be, I think. And people listening will understand that to just to share real life stories um, and what you've been through. And then to, to hear you, how, like you say, how happy you seem now and how well you seem um and like you said you are still in still in recovery and and um everything that comes along with that but um just to take I suppose even just taking things for granted like smelling the outside air and hearing birds is um something that I think a lot of people will take on board and um yeah have it is going to have a great impact I think and one of the things that we do on the show um a, a little feature of the show is um called trip of the week now it's not a fantastic name but we're so far in now that I'm just sticking with it um I always ask my guests for something that hasn't gone to plan over the last week or so now this can be sort of anything you want um it's just got that message attached to it I suppose that it's all right to trip it's all right to fall over it's a sort of how how you pick yourself up and, and respond so what would your trip of the week be this week uh well that actually you've asked me on a very good week because it was a very big trip <laughs> um, and uh, I had my hospital appointment uh on Tuesday and unwisely as it turned out the, the, on the Monday evening I ate raw carrots for the first time 
Um, so generally, I've, I mean, I had a lot of pain leading up to Christmas Eve and then uh, fate decided to deal me a decent hand and allowed <laughs> me to escape all of my abdominal pain from Christmas Eve onwards, which meant I could eat Christmas cake, I ate stolen, I mm. ate turkey, uh, roast uh, turkey dinner um, on Christmas Day, I ate all kinds of different things. And I've been pretty pain free up until Tuesday when I went to the hospital because I'd eaten raw carrots. And then just to add injury to insult, I actually ate uh, for lunch before I went down to the hospital, raw carrots, celery, peppers and hummus. And um, uh, to cut a long story short, I basically arrived at the hospital, didn't feel very well at all, um, but was okay. Was examined by the doctor, he was, he was happy enough. And then I went for my COVID vaccination, which I was delighted to get, and then just suddenly went downhill and ended up vomiting everywhere. <laughs> very, very ill. Um, just really wanted to lie down. And um, uh, eventually my husband managed to get me in the car, I lay down in the back of the car and we got home and I've just slept for two days. And, um, but even, even that, I can see the positives. I can see the positive that my doctor actually managed to see how bad I can be when I am bad. Um, because it's very difficult until you've gone through something to see somebody saying, well, I'm in pain. Well, that can mean any number of things. Um, also, I, I learned not to eat more carrots. <laughs> um, it seems to be the trigger. Um, so, um, yeah, I, that, that's my big trip of the week, being too confident and too... <laughs> gun. I should have waited until I was back at home. <laughs> I think your conversation started with beetroot curry and uh, ended with, with yeah. raw carrots so, and the message yeah. of um, having taken something that you can laugh at. I think we can, we can definitely have a smile at that. And before we do wrap up, I always ask my guests as well if they've got a message that they can send back to their past self. Now, this could be right at the start of your life or whenever you like it to be but if you had to send a message back to your past self what would that be it's it's a really easy question for me to answer actually i um i've spent a lot of my life worrying about making the right decision failing um things that I'd planned for years, not coming to fruition. Um, and the message I would give to myself now, knowing what I know, again, with my varied background, the, the varied jobs that I've had, the varied mm. opportunities that I've had, was that you did, you did okay. You did okay. All of those bad times turned into something positive. Every time one door shut, another door opened. There's always an opportunity. Um, you know, some of my greatest ex experiences were when I was working with Ginny Elliott, um, the former world champion and, and European champion event rider, horse rider that I, I mentioned. And that started from me literally walking up to her and saying, asking her, did she uh, do clinics uh, to, to, to teach other people and me, and me arranging one for her? And she saw what I was capable of in organizing that. And that led to two years, wonderful, wonderful experience working with her. And so I, 
the message you I did okay and those opportunities do still keep coming along mm. you just have to be um you just have to be willing to take a risk every now and then and the majority of the times it will come off and it will even if it doesn't come off in the way you imagined you'll walk out of that situation having learned something about yourself and about other people um and a friend said to me not not long ago um people who we see as really succeeding multi-millionaires billionaires successful in their jobs heads of companies whatever it is the difference between them and people that aren't as successful successful as them is only that they fail as many times but they learn every time they fail and it's people that have their eyes open to the possibilities of every failure being a learning lesson rather than a dead end. I think that's such a powerful way to finish that message to anyone I suppose like you say is there's always opportunity in something and if you're willing to take a risk and maybe just give something a go you never know what's going to come from it and obviously you saying that you've done okay I think from what you've shared today I think on behalf of me and everyone that's going to listen you've done more than okay it's been so powerful so inspiring to hear your story from what is such a, obviously a, a difficult time with the illnesses that you've had um so I, honestly I can't say thank you enough for sharing everything um wishing you all obviously the best um for the rest of your recovery and, and the future and hopefully the sun keeps shining in yeah. France and you can get out um, and enjoy it as much as you can so um a big thank you from me Sally um and hopefully we can catch up again soon Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Wow, what a brilliant woman. And that was episode eight, everyone. And what an inspirational and powerful story. Please stay tuned for the last two episodes of series one. And in the meantime, do check out the Instagram page. Let's get talking underscore podcast to stay up to date with everything that's going on. In the words of Sally, there is always a new opportunity and don't be afraid to take that risk. That was episode eight. I'm Tom and this is Let's Get Talking and we'll see you next time.